The life and life ring comes from a result of a simple device that works in line with the powerful life-saving laws of physics, not against it. This shows strength and value is not in the news itself, but in its reliance on the Word of God as eternal moral principles that serve as a basis for interpreting the world around us. That's what keeps us afloat in the stream of the current events. It's Saturday, May 22nd, 2021, and today we're taking a look at the following top stories. We take a look at the state of abortion, the state of the Bible, and the state of the universe. Then we take a look at the conflict uh, in Israel and Gaza, and finally we dip our feet into the crypto pool. Welcome to LifeRing, a podcast where we strive to provide you with a well-rounded review of what is going on in the world between Monday and Friday of this past week. My name is Alex, and I'm joined by my collaborators, Vadim and Paul. Hello. Hi, guys. How are you? Doing good. I have a funny story to tell, actually. So last night, uh, I stayed up late, and I was replacing a thermostat um, in my electric range, so like an oven. And I was finished. I was happy. And so I was putting on the back grate onto the oven. So if you've ever done it before, you know that at the back grate, you have to kind of grab it from the bottom and snap it in. So while I was doing that, there is a bit of slimy stuff. And so I um, I wiped it off after, of course, but then I was putting it in and it kind of slipped. And so there's a metal grate and I realized that like it's perfect for cutting. And when I realized that is because it fell and then I was trying to grab it and then I slipped my finger open. So that was fun. Yeah, it was blood everywhere and... um, yeah, but hey, at least the oven. You know what fixed. I, you know, okay, congrats. Uh, you know what I don't like? I don't know if you've done it yet, but replacing the filters mm-hmm. in the, whatever it's called, the system that heats up your house, right? There's two mm-hmm. filters in there. Man, getting in, you know, with that little, I don't know if it's the same thing we're talking about, but there's this panel that you have to unlatch and it's got really tight, in my case, it's got little, really tight, um, I don't know, snap little thingies that hold it in place. And it hurts your thumb when you try to close them and <laughs> unlock them. Well, you know what they say, no pain, no gain. Yeah. <laughs> you have a story about appliances? Uh, I had a quote I was going to share, but now I can't remember it. That's a good one. No. Inspiring. I like Thanks. it. And hello to you, dear friend. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Uh, we're glad you find this podcast worth your time and... Without further ado, let's jump into the stream of news from this past week. Well, lots of good news this week uh, as the country takes another step towards uh, shaking off the shackles of COVID and all the baggage of restrictions that are accumulated over the years. Uh, They are saying that the cases in U.S. fell by 20% and they keep going down. Um, Now, I'm not selling you on Texas, but there's some good news coming out of Texas uh, that are inspiring in it shows that the country still has pockets of common sense. Now, this is according to Epoch Times. On Monday, the state of Texas recorded zero deaths among people with COVID-19 on May 16th for the first time since March 2020. On Tuesday, uh, next, I guess, batch of good news came when Texas governor uh, issued an order that bars local governments and schools from requiring masks indoors. Also, this week, you've probably heard that almost every major retail store allows fully vaccinated customers and in most cases employees to shop without a mask. Have you been to a store without a mask already? My wife is telling me a story that actually uh, yesterday she was 
walking into Walmart and, you know, Walmart is very strict, especially, I don't know if it's just in the state, but they, they have a person at the door that doesn't even let you in if you don't have a mask. And so she was walking in and she, um, forgot her mask. And so she was running back. And then all of a sudden she noticed there was no sign on Walmart that said you needed a mask. So she, so she came closer and saw that the guy at the front door didn't have a mask on. So she walked in and noticed that most of the employees didn't have a mask on. And so for her, it was kind of like a realization, like, well, what is this? This is crazy. No one has a mask on. What is going on? And so I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. About a week ago, yeah, I went to a food co-op, just the local co-op. And they were one of the first to be really stringent on the rules, right? And I walk in and something's weird. Like the, the, the employees weren't married. Like people wear masks, but employees weren't. Yeah, and that's when I found out that it's about time, I guess, they decided to lift the, for vaccinated people at least, to mm-hmm. lift the restrictions. Speaking of vaccines, uh, you might want to know that as of Friday, the Center of Disease Control and Prevention reported 1,949 breakthrough cases. So that involves hospitalizations or deaths amongst the vaccinated population, which currently stands at 125 million that have been fully vaccinated. So one in 64,000 people got sick again. And of that number, about 20% were fatal. So that's something to kind of keep in mind. Uh, In the United States, there are also said about 600,000 children aged 12 to 15, so teenagers, have been vaccinated against COVID-19 as of May 18th, according to CDC. Oh, and if you took the vaccine, there will be a booster shot as early as September, and maybe a few more, depending on what the upcoming winter will bring. Now, New York and Maryland, uh, after hearing, you know, how Ohio reported that its numbers of, you know, vaccinations shot up after Mm -hmm. announcing the lottery system, decided to implement their own. So New York has like a 5 million lottery that they will enter you in if you take the vaccine, so... Now, in terms of travel, and this is the last, um, I guess, update on the COVID front, ambassadors from 27 European Union countries agreed on Wednesday that restrictions for travelers outside of European Union should be eased, in particular for those vaccinated against COVID-19. Or we probably should say specifically or only for those who have been vaccinated. The rest will still have to quarantine like has been the rule before. Well, let's dive in into the top five main stories that stood out to us this week. <laughs> I want to begin the segment with some audio bits from an interview of Richard Dawkins, a well-known atheist author, with an RTE radio host, Brendan O'Connor. Oh, and the backstory behind this is that um, this host that's interviewing him actually has a Down syndrome child, and the question that's going to be here is about abortion. And so it's Richard Dawkins' comments that he made in a Twitter post of another user advocating or advising her to, ta- to make an abortion if she has a Down syndrome kid. You got involved in a Twitter interaction with a woman who said she would be faced with a real ethical dilemma if she became pregnant with a baby with Down syndrome. You tweeted, abort it and try again. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you have the choice. Now, I, I saw you're speaking to somebody who, who did bring someone like that into the world, okay, but we let's put that aside. Why is it no. immoral not to abort it? Well, uh, that was probably putting it a bit too strongly, but um, given that uh, the, um, the amount of suffering in the world uh, probably does not go down, probably does go up, uh, c- compared to having another child who doesn't have Down syndrome. What People I'm interested in saying, is how do you know that it increases the amount of suffering in the world to bring in a child with Down syndrome into the world? I don't know it for certain. It seems okay. to me to be plausible. You probably would increase the amount of happiness in the world more by having an, another child instead. Do you think? Would you have no reason for knowing that? 
I have no direct evidence. No, you don't. Oh, it just okay. seems plausible. Just you know, you're such a scientific, logical person that I thought that you could possibly have some logical uh, backup to it. Do you know anyone with Down syndrome? Not, not, not intimately. No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look. Everyone has their own experience of it and possibly my experience would be that you're not necessarily right. And I think a lot of people would think you're not necessarily right. But Look, anyway. I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm sure that 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 you love your child. Oh, yeah. Nothing, no, nothing to do with that. I'm, I, I'm not having an emotional discussion with you here. I'm yeah. simply having a logical discussion with you. Do you think it would be immoral for them not to do it? Let's leave out of the let's leave out the immoral. No, I but you brought be, immoral into it. Okay, well I, I take that back. Okay. I think it would be wise. I think it would be wise and sensible. You know, children who are so called perfect can cause terrible suffering in the world as well. But I suppose we have no way of checking, have we? Uh, no, of course. Yeah, yeah. So this is a a, a you know well known author, a widely quoted atheist. Yeah, I mean, and uh, anyone who considers themselves even slightly well-read, will at least have heard of his God Delusion book, and obviously Richard Dawkins is very uh, highly acclaimed, even, in, I guess, as far as secular circles go. But this whole argument is just absurd uh, at its foundation. Like, if you're in a position to look at another person that you know nothing about except for their medical condition, like, for example, Richard Dawkins looking at someone uh, with Down syndrome, and he, he admits that he doesn't know anyone with that. Like, he just sees it as kind of like something over there and something that uh, is unfortunate. And so that person would be better off not being alive. I think people that uh, spout that kind of rhetoric should take the initiative and uh, remove the suffering that they're causing to the world. Is happiness all about having everything just go smooth for you? Yeah, you're taking your opinion on, on what's valuable in your own life and projecting onto somebody else and deciding that that person should live or die based on that opinion. So I bring this because there have been a few developments in the fight for the unborn. It, it's, it's really heartbreaking to realize how we speak, you know, of class oppression today, and yet we fail to protect the most vulnerable class that can't speak for itself. 62 million babies have been aborted here in the United States since the Roe v. Wade decision made in 1973. And as the pro-life movement continues to rally for the unborn, it's slowly making its dent. It's unraveling the deadly legacy of that 1973 fateful case. Now, on Tuesday, the Supreme Court announced that it will review a court case that could potentially overturn the Roe v. Wade uh, uh, decision. So Jane Roe, uh, in that case, her name is her actual name is Norma McCarvey, and she wasn't actually looking for a case. The lawyers kind of found her. She didn't even get to ever abort the baby, thank God. She carried her out to term and gave her up for adoption. So this was a, a third kid that she gave up for adoption. The reason is that the Supreme Court obviously took a long time to come to a decision. She never benefited from that decision. So on January 22nd, 1973, the Supreme Court, um, in a 7-2 to two decision, struck down the Texas law banning abortions and effectively legalizing the procedure nationwide. Now, in order for them to take a case on today, uh, at least four justices have to agree that it's worth taking, you know, the time of a particular case. And they they essentially get to pick what will bring the most benefit for the nation, which ones are the most important constitutionally wise, right? And so according to Christian headlines, the case they're looking at is Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization uh, in relation to the law enacted in 2018. So this Mississippi law prohibits abortion after 15 weeks gestational age, with exceptions for medical emergencies and fetal abnormality. If upheld, it perhaps would be the biggest ever pro-life victory at the Supreme Court 
and open the door for other states to pass similar laws. Now, according to MercatorNet, the Supreme Court's definition of the term viability is the point at which the unborn child has the ability to survive outside its mother's womb. So far this year, heartbeat bills have been introduced in 15 states. Two states, Kentucky and Mississippi, have passed the heartbeat bills into law. So, for example, in Mississippi, doctors that violate this law would be liable for up to $1,000 fine, $1, fine, and up to six months in prison, along with the suspen- suspension of their medical license. Now, the Kentucky heartbeat law would make aborting an unborn and the Kentucky heartbeat law would make aborting an unborn child with a detectable heartbeat a class D felony, punishable in the state with one, they say, to five years in prison. So, what is the exact time that a um, heartbeat begins in a in a baby? Do we know that? Yeah. That so day? it turns out, well, the Mississippi law says fifteen weeks, but the heartbeat could be detected as early as six weeks, which is way before the mother would even, well, in some cases, find out that, that she's pregnant. So this is monumental for the pro-life movement. But it's the marginal cases that are bringing about all the legislation. So, like, I know that the liberal argument, for example, is that um, the government is basically forcing uh, the women to be, like, an instrument of, of baby production, basically. It's like, oh, like, she didn't choose to be pregnant, and so now uh, they're not giving her a choice to, like, retract, I guess. Uh, but basically, they're comparing themselves to, like, cows on a dairy farm. They're, like, artificially inseminated and, like, have no say in that, where where you legitimately had no say in whether or not they would do the deed, you know. Um, those are extremely marginal. But I do think that there should be provisions made for that, like rape affidavits and things like that. Well, the thing is, just 1% of women actually obtain abortion because they became pregnant through rape, and less than 0.5% do so because of incest. It's a very, very tiny portion. Again, there are provisions in most of actually heartbeat bills, including the latest one uh, that just got signed into law this week in Texas. So in a statement after signing the law, the governor said, Our creator endowed us with a right to life, and yet millions of children lose their right to life every year because of abortion. He went on to say, In Texas, we work to save those lives. And that's exactly what the Texas legislature this session. So under the new law, the physicians now must search for baby's heartbeat and notify the mother if one is detected. And once it's identified, the doctor you know, must take all the necessary precautions to preserve that child's life. If you don't really want a child, then you could stop it before six weeks. Um, and if you don't, then that's just negligence on your part that you should be like responsible for. So my wife brought this up yesterday, actually. She says there's this guy who's life affected the lives of all of us. In fact, we have probably at least a few things in this room that are here thanks to this guy. And it's all due to the fact that he was never aborted. He was actually given up for adoption and his name is Steve Jobs. So Jobs' family adopted him. This is one of the prime examples of, you know, the 62 million kids that have been aborted since that fateful decision. Those are doctors right those are scientists inventors pastors you know political leaders that never got to see uh the world and you know possibly would have changed the course of this nation i think this quote by marjorie dunfelser concludes this segment well she said this is a landmark opportunity for the supreme court to recognize the right of states to protect unborn children from the horrors of painful late-term abortions across the nation State lawmakers acting on the will of the people have introduced 536 pro-life bills 
aimed at humanizing our laws and challenging the radical status quo imposed by Roe. It is time for the Supreme Court to catch up to scientific reality and the resulting consensus of the American people as expressed in elections and policy. Moving on to the second uh, segment, let's talk about the state of the Bible. So the Barna Group, named after George Barna, its founder, is a market research firm specializing in studying the religious beliefs and behaviors of Americans and the intersection of faith and culture, well, according to what they have on their website. Well, they've been working together with American Bible Society since 2011, tracking the state of the Bible every year. So they do this report. They look into how the population perceives and engages with the Bible. Uh, here's what they said. This year, American Bible Society collected and analyzed the state of the Bible data, collaborating with Barna to highlight connections between the Bible and the broader story of faith in America. Introduction of their report, it says, the original state of the Bible research project began in 1812. That's right, 1812. You might even say American Bible Society was founded to answer the needs of that first American Bible research project. So there's these two missionaries, Samuel and John. They went from New England to tour the U.S. and see the state of faith. First, it was just the south, southern states, and then two years later, they visited the Wild West. Here's an excerpt that I found you know, from their report back then, from 1814. Quote, Everywhere they went, they found a dearth, which means lack of Bibles, ministers, and churches, a lack of respect for the Sabbath, and a general disregard among the inhabitants of the West for the condition of their souls. What existed in abundance was profanity, gambling, drinking, and fighting. Most of the citizens of the West still did not have access to ministers, churches, or Bibles. So anyways, the whole report is 70 pages long, and I suppose it takes a few hours to read. I haven't done that, but I'm going to share with you some of the highlights that Barna's article, which was published this Wednesday, points out. What Bible app do you guys use? What's your go-to Bible app? There's Bible.is is the best if you're looking for audiobooks. Um, like, there's there's a bunch of different ones you could choose from, uh, but I find it really buggy, actually. I, I tend to go with Blue Letter Bible for actual, like like flipping through and uh, cross-referencing and things like that. So I've been actually using YouVersion um, just because they have really good plans, like reading plans. And so there's there's a ton of them, you know. That, that That's my go-to. But then um, if I'm doing a Bible study, then I go with the Blue Letter Bible because you can look at the Greek, you can look at the... Um, you know, the different words used in the original text. So if you're listening and you haven't tried that app, we, we recommend it. Take a look at it. It's uh, the design, I think, is not the best. There's there could be some improvements in terms of the way it looks. Yeah. It's just not aesthetically like, whoa, this is a cool app. But it's powerful in terms of resources. Well, I actually have like seven apps on my phone that are the Bible Um yeah, so seven. Those are rookie numbers. You got to step it up. I feel like every year that I'm a Christian, I like, like truly dedicated Christian. I get another Bible app, you know. So I, I just mark my Christianity and spirituality in those terms. So, well, th that goes well along with this first uh, point that they highlighted from the report. The five things that the article highlighted were beginning with Bible users in the U.S. increased in 2021. They're saying that in 2020 it actually was at the lowest, and it went up like two percent in this past year. The nevers, the people who never read the Bible or never even open the Bible app, or, you know, they have dropped to the lowest ever. So if in 2019 it was like 35% of people never opened the Bible, then it was 31% in 2020 and 29% in 2021, which is lowest since 2016. 
do we know the total number of users? Because I know 2% seems kind of small, but if that's like 2 million people, then that's quite a significant number. Well, here's one of the other points they're making is that one in six U.S. adults reads the Bible most days during the week. So here's what they're saying. Data revealed that over 181 million Americans opened the Bible in the past year. So the number is significantly, which is like 7% from 2020, when 169 million adults use the Bible, at least occasionally. And in 2021, we estimate that 128 million American adults reach for the Bible with regularity. So 2% but, would be like 3.6 million then. That's quite a lot. Huh? Big increase. And here's the, here's the next point. Americans largely believe that the nation would fare poorly without the Bible. So there was a 5% increase since last year in the people who believe that we need the Bible. But on the, on the other side, one in seven people believe that we don't need the Bible as a nation at all. The next point is that over half of U.S. adults say that the Bible is without error. 55% of American, here, you know, American adults hold to what is known as high view of scripture, which deems the Bible without error. Now, one in eight indicate that the Bible is just another book and contains stories and advice. One in ten holds the view that the Bible is not inspired by God, but rather reveals the writer's understanding of the principles of God. And some Americans, 10%, uh, take the you know hostile Bible stance, believing that the Bible was written to control or manipulate people. Well, and lastly, half of Americans affirm that the Bible contains the keys to living a meaningful life. So 54% of people say yes, the Bible is important. It has the wisdom for living. Last year was 68%. Now it's 54 so that's not a, an increase exactly, as you can tell. That's fair to say. Yeah. This article concludes uh, with this. It's clear the hearts are being softened to the Bible. But will this willingness to open Scripture, even if infrequently, evolve into a deeper engagement with the message, or will middling Bible usage satisfy a need for just enough? Now, we were yesterday at a conference uh, with Vadim, and the speaker brought up or brought forth an interesting point. You remember, uh, he, he, was, he was making the case that memorize the scriptures while you're young. So he was um, original from Ukraine, and we have Ukrainian-Russian version of the Bible, and some tend to read more of one version than the other. And he was saying that he used to read Russian, and so those, that's how he remembers the Russian version. I guess you could find a similar case with KJV and, you know, the older folks here who still remember their Bible verses and... KGV rather than the newer translation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny looking back on it in hindsight, how good your memory was when you're really young. Like, uh, I don't know, like in Sunday school, we had to sometimes memorize a verse or something. And uh, like, they would assign it the week before, but then you show up to class like, shoot, I didn't learn that. And then you just read it like three or four times and then you can say it. Like, uh, but and it now, sticks with you for a long time too. Yeah, and because your brain is so impressionable, I guess. But yeah, getting older, you sometimes get lost like... You're reading a page from a book, and you're like, wait, what was I reading? And then you go back like three or four times and still can't remember anything from it, you know? So uh, I do think that's a valid point in that, like, take advantage of your young years to uh, to really grow in wisdom, and then it'll it'll stick with you. Yeah, I definitely think whether it's memorizing the Bible or reading the Bible, it's, it's definitely important, and I think it's definitely something that we should do. And so I know re- reading these statistics and kind of hearing them, um, it is kind of confusing because it's hard to imagine. There's there's so many. There's 55%, there's 1 in 8, 1 in 10, there's 5% increase. But I think the main takeaway, you said it very well, Alex, is that people are increasing um, and they're at least um, 
and their curiosity on what the Bible is. And they're going in, they're reading and spending time in Scripture, which I think is good. And I think all of us should be spending more time in the Bible. And it's a good sign that the country is kind of leaning towards that. You know, when we talk about more than half of adults, that's a lot. And of course, when they look at the numbers, they're not just looking at the, you know, church numbers, if you will. They're looking at all the people across uh, the nation. So it's it's a, it's a, it's a good message. Psalm 8, uh, verses 3 to 5 has a perfect transition into our third segment out of five. When I look to your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is a man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So there was a long time ago when the boundaries of earth seemed endless, the distant land, mysterious and unknown. The vast world of mountains, deserts, plains, oceans, and islands remained unexplored. And yet time went by and explorers kept reaching new lands and rediscovering old ones. And finally, we arrived at this last century that we live in, where our ships went beyond the atmosphere of our planet. And to be frank, we still have a lot to explore here on Earth. But the frontiersmen of the 21st century have set their sights on distant lands beyond our planet. And so, you know, we've sent probes towards the neighboring planets, with the most recent one being the Perseverance rover with the Ingenuity drone uh, that is currently traversing the Martian soil. It's actually the seventh rover that we dispatched since 1971, it turns out. The first two failed in 1971, and then in 90s, we sent on the next one that actually worked. Well, in this week's news, we have uh, received the images from first Chinese rover on Mars. So according to CNN... Uh, quote, the rover spent seven months en route to Mars before entering its orbit in February. Tianwen-1, or Quest for Heavenly Truth, as China's mission uh, is called, is one of the three that launched last summer, along with, uh, they're saying, NASA Perseverance rover, which landed on Mars in February. Then the United Arab Emirates Hope Probe, which entered the orbit around Mars in February as well. Now, unlike the U.S. and China missions, the UAE probe is not intended to land on Mars. It's just going to study the planet from orbit. All three missions launched around the same time due to an alignment between Earth and Mars on the same side of the sun, making uh, for a more efficient journey to the end of the planet. So why I think this is interesting? Well, because we've seen this explosion of interest in space exploration in the past decade, maybe a little less even. There's, you know, all this interest in the moon, Mars, as both present somewhat viable options for at least theoretical colonization. I, I see it like, you know, like that fast walk. Like it's not a race yet, but the fact that China landed on Mars, it's like that awkward fast walk when two people are trying to look normal as they're both hurrying towards, you know, same place, I guess. Now, do, do you do you think uh, that some humans say, I don't know, in a decade will get to live on Mars, moon? I think it's definitely interesting. And I feel like a good answer to this question is I don't know. Um, because there's so much going on there. There's so many different countries, as you've mentioned, that are fighting to get onto the moon. We all know Elon Musk, who is wanting to settle on Mars or um, he, here in the next you know, couple of decades. So it's definitely possible with all of the curiosity behind it. But for me, honestly, it's like a breath of fresh air, though, seeing that like the new cycle where it's not all about politics, where it's not all about, you know, all these different conflicts, all this war that is going on on this planet. But people are actually curious on what's out there, if they could if we could live on different planets, if we can go and really just exploring God's creation and what is out there. I think this is awesome. And I personally don't think that it's a big deal that these countries are like fighting for Mars or for the moon or that China's on the moon. 
on Mars as well as the United States is on Mars. I think it's cool. And I feel like, you know, they're doing research. And as of right now, even though it's a race, I think it's cool that countries are focusing their um, funds to ex- explore space. Yeah, it's definitely really exciting. I, I know that, I mean, now it's not even countries. It's, you know, private corporations that are getting involved in all this. But I think it's, uh, it would be really cool if the U.S. would win this race because it's not a question of, Obviously, there's obstacles in in terms of viability, and Elon Musk was on on some interview, I think, where he was like laughing about how people are going to die, but people are still volunteering in droves to be mm-hmm. uh, sort of these space pioneers. Uh, so there's obstacles to overcome, like radiation, viability of uh, agriculture, you know, air density, whatever, all that stuff. But it's not a question of if we'll be able to live on Mars. It's a question of how they're going to live on Mars. So. And I think that's going to be uh, a lot of that is going to be decided based on who can like who can plant their flag, I guess, in to borrow that expression. So in light of all of this, we're about to upgrade our Hubble Space Telescope, which, by the way, has been in the orbit as long as I have been in the Earth's atmosphere. Well, close, at least. Uh, It's been up there since April 24th, 1990. And it's the source of all those pictures of the galaxies that you see and so on. Well, there's an upgrade coming soon, which has been in the works for quite a while now. In fact, there's two of them. One is named the James Webb Space Telescope, and the other one will have a view that is 100 times larger than the Hubble. And it's named the Nancy Grace Roman Telescope. Both are named after the people you know involved with the whole astronomy side and NASA side. So the news are that the Webb is now in the final stages of testing in the U.S. before uh, being shipped to French Guiana ahead of its expected launch from there at the end of October. Now, FYI, this is a project trailing all the way from 1996. It was originally planned to cost $500 million, and the launch date was 2007. Well, now its cost for today is $10 billion, and it's finally nearing its launch. Now, the telescope will be 1 million miles away from Earth, so it will be too far away for any crewed mission to reach it. But now that I've said the perspective, let's take a look at something else that broke news this week. Imagine a technology that can do six to 700 G-forces, that can fly at 13,000 miles an hour, that uh, it can evade radar, and that can fly through air and water and possibly space. And, oh, by the way, has no obvious signs of propulsion, no wings, no control surfaces, and yet still can defy the natural effects of Earth's gravity. That's precisely what we're seeing. So you're seeing it both with the radar and with the infrared. And that tells you that there is something out there. Pretty hard to spoof that. These photographs were taken in 2019 in the same area. The Pentagon confirms these are images of objects it can't identify. Lieutenant Graves told us pilots training off the Atlantic coast see things like that all the time. Every day. Every day for at least a couple of years. Um, Wait a minute. Every day for a couple of years? Mm -hmm. So this was an interview done with a pilot who's uh, in the military, I suppose. And um, he is saying that they've been seeing these, you know, every day for at least a couple of years. And so there was this new video footage that was released uh, that became available this week. It was actually filmed in 2019. Again, it's one of those blurry, grainy, black and white images of some kind of dot hovering above, which looks to be water, right? And then it all of a sudden dips into water it like without a splash and disappears. And you can hear in the background, you know, the pilots or whoever filming it from a boat saying, okay, we're tracking it, we're tracking it, and it's gone. He's like, mark the point, you know, because it entered without a splash. 
what they're saying is, you know, in the past, I say two, three, four years, there's been, you know, videos one after another released of um, something out there that has unbelievable speeds, right? So the U.S. government is finally coming to this grudging acknowledgement that this UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, uh, more commonly known as UFOs, um, that they're real. And after decades of public denial, the Pentagon now admits that there's something out there. Actually, the U.S. Senate wants to know what it is. The Intelligence Committee has ordered the Director of National Intelligence and the Secretary of Defense to deliver a report on the mysterious sightings by next month. This may not be the case for all of these sightings, but I know a couple of these sightings may actually just be of military equipment um, because there, I watched a podcast where it talked about the um, a person that f- flew actual military bombers. And if you see pictures of them, they're little triangles. It's a triangle shape. Um, I can I can show a picture, but this thing can travel really, really fast. It can make a right turn. It could stop. It could go up. It could go down. It could. It's just incredible what it can do. And so I think if you have a mindset that I'm going to go see a UFO and you see one of these bombers, you're going to be like, that's a UFO, 100%. So I'm not saying that's the case for all of these um, sightings, but I definitely think, think that's a big case. And like, if you research these military bombers, they're incredible. Obviously they can only like at full speed, they could travel for like less than five minutes, but it's still impressive what they can do. I'm just saying we have all these, you know, telescopes that see billions of miles away, but we can't get a clear picture of something that's in our own atmosphere. Yeah. I, I love cryptozoology and, uh, listening to all the, all the crazy sightings and people, uh, people sharing stories and things like that. And yeah, there's, there are things that are just inexplicable. Um, like you recall, like in the fifties, you had the Dad Love Pass incident, uh, like mysterious disappearance of that group of hikers. And, you know, people don't know if it was some kind of like, um, some kind of military test uh, that just ended up tragically or, um, you know, you have sightings in Roswell, New Mexico of, you know, people saying that was one thing that was another, um, most for the most part it's it's said like oh yeah this is military uh military exercises like testing new uh new technology all that stuff but you know what if this is just a case where it happens to not be our domestic military it happens to be foreign military or Mm -hmm. or some like privately developed technology uh so not discounting the aliens theory by uh, any means keep them coming but um you know we don't know maybe it's iron man Anyways, looks like the Pentagon has uh, a June 1 deadline to deliver a report to Congress about what it knows of UAP. Welcome to the lightning round. So this is the part of the show where we go through a few shorter stories, but still stories that we thought were important to mention. Um, So the first one in world news, uh, Chinese authorities order video denials by Uyghurs of abuses. I I hope I pronounced all of that right. So basically what this story says is that in China, the Uyghurs were kind of forced to release these videos on on social media, whether it's TikTok, whether it's, you know, some other platform where they basically say that the Chinese government and Xinjiang and and this region is just luscious. It's amazing. You know, everything that the um, Chinese government is doing is awesome. And so this kind of went out into the internet and there's a lot of criticism of it. And the Chinese government is trying to stop this criticism. It's trying, it's trying to stop all of these people from going up against it. And one story especially that stood out to me is um, this uh, student that went to Sweden 
from China, now she's a permanent resident of Sweden, is now tweeting about how this is so untrue and how all of these videos are a scam. And so what ha- what ended up happening is the Chinese government went up to her mom, which still lives in China, and they showed a picture of her daughter's tweets and said, please remove this or else we'll like, you'll face consequences. So they're still trying to shut all of this down, even if people are in different countries. So definitely interesting, definitely scary. Glad we don't live in China. Would you would you live in a Chinese Mars colony? Ooh, bet. I mean, listen, <laughs> we we had to send seven rovers. They sent only two. One was like in two thousand, like a few years ago. Mm. Didn't work out. It just kind of got stuck in our Earth orbit and had to be brought down. Uh, and this was their second try, and they made it. I mean, think about it. So on Thursday, the House of Representatives voted to create an independent commission uh, modeled after the nine eleven commission where uh, basically they would make recommendations by the end of the year for securing the capital and preventing another uh, quote-unquote deadly insurrection. No, the Republicans didn't support it because uh, they were saying, well, why don't we include all the other, you know, groups that um, were violently protesting, such as BLM or Antifa. So the next story is Biden to use private firms to surveil service members' social media accounts for concerning behavior. So there's still a lot of news and still a lot of concern around this but basically basically the story says that president joe biden's administration is reportedly preparing to contract with private firms to surveil the social media accounts of service members to weed out those with views that the administration deems concerning and the way they are planning to do this is a alleged pilot program that will search for certain keywords to identify those that the administration deems like potential extremists or, you know, something that's not not what they think. So speaking of concerning behavior, I think I know what Joe Biden is talking about. There was a man being interviewed about the Israel-Hamas conflict, and uh, he was asked if he can take one last question, and then he told the reporter, he said that if, you know, you, you can ask the question, but only if you stand in front of the truck while I drive off, and uh, now would be the time to reveal that this man was Joe Biden himself. Anyways, in the world of economy... Um Here's, here's a few headlines. Uh, so the child tax credit that you usually get at the end of the year per each kid now is going to be given out monthly. Uh, looks like it's going to be $300 per kid under the age of six and $250 if the child is six to 17. And the total of this cash allo- allowance that is going to be given to each family throughout the year is up to 3600 so again, this is not a new money being given out. It's just taken out from what you would receive at the end of the year as a child tax credit. I guess they want people to have money now versus having them wait to do their taxes for the next year. Now, this potentially is going to be bad because we're already facing inflation right now. And this is just more cash at the time when we probably don't need any more of it infused into economy. So because of the inflation, the number of states that are dropping federal jobless uh, rises to 22. So this week, Indiana, Oklahoma, Texas joined 19 other Republican-led states moving to drop the $300 weekly federal jobless benefit boost in a bid to encourage the unemployment to get back to work amid sky-high levels of job openings and business hiring woes, according to the Epoch Times. So this is a good move because this will actually encourage people to go back to work because at this point, you could be on unemployment, you could be receiving you know, government stimulus checks, buying crypto, and just living the best time of your life while you're locked up inside your house watching Netflix. Is it really worth it though? Because like if these 20 states that you mentioned, right, they're not going to take this extra boost. Um, but then the states that are 
are still taking it, then in a sense, I, I know they're trying to help the federal economy, but if those other states keep taking and taking more and more and more and more, at one point they're going to outweigh the good that these other states are trying to do. And in other news, Bank of America announced that it will raise the U.S. minimum wage to $25 by 2025. Now, here's the irony. 2025 is four years away from now, right? By, with, the, with the current uh, rate of inflation, $25 minimum wage doesn't seem to be that far off from what yeah. we would expect it to be. So really, they're just ahead of time trying to portray themselves as, you know, we're going to give $25 an hour. Who knows, maybe $30 an hour by that time would be the new minimum wage. So I was walking in a local Walmart and then I saw like a sign like, hey, like hiring help. And so I went to go look at it and the minimum wage for employees is $17. That is insane. You know if they're still hiring? or <laughs> <laughs> So I was about to say, let's all just go work for Bank of America. Are you kidding me? Residents of Alameda, California, flocked to an abandoned gas station to get a whiff of a corpse flower. Uh, it's estimated by the owner that by 4 p.m., at least 1,200 residents had visited the flower. So this flower is special because it... Um, it's gigantic, and it smells like uh, rotting flesh. Very cool. So in Sweden, there's two stories on transgender topic. For The first one is uh, there's this, according to Christian headlines, the largest Christian denomination in Sweden posted an open letter this month to the transgender community declaring that it, too, is transgender. Now, I hope you caught that. The, the church is transgender, not an individual. The com- Anyways, the Church of Sweden, a Lutheran denomination with more than 5 million members, posted a letter on its official website with the names of nearly 1,000 people who signed it. It was authored by six individuals, four of whom are priests. Here's what they said, quote, We are writing to you from a church that is also trans. A church is made up of people, the letter says. People are different. We have confirmants, employees, church wardens, elected representatives, and other parishioners who define themselves as transgender people. The church thus also consists of transgender people. Therefore, the church could be described as trans. And that goes along with this other news of a hospital, Karolinska Hospital in Sweden, one of the world's most renowned medical establishments, uh, they just announced that they're ending the practice of prescribing puberty blockers to minors. Uh, and it's important because it's likely that, you know, this whole transgender dogma clearly overstepped legal and parental authority. The hospital cited the high risk to benefit ratio of hormonal intervention in children to justify its decision. The National Health Service has suspended new hormonal interventions for minors under 16, and there's grown resistance across Finland. Another Canadian church closed for violating COVID-19 restrictions. I'm sure we've all heard of um, Pavlowski's church and how he got um, in handcuffs, they got fined. And so now, um, according to Faithwire, um, this other Canadian church had reportedly violated emergency orders that were established during the COVID-19 pandemic. Current rules in Ontario, Canada, regarding both outdoor and indoor services call for a 10-person cap on attendance. The church had previously been fined 50000 and two pastors were given fines of $10,000 apiece. Additionally, the church faces 100000 in legal costs. A school bus driver in South Carolina is crediting crediting his precious cargo of 18 elementary schoolers for foiling a hijacking without anyone getting hurt. A man with a rifle boarded Kenneth Corbin's bus looking for a ride to the next 
town 20 miles away, but only made it six minutes until he gave up in frustration when kindergartners on board wouldn't stop asking him questions. Corbin said the hijackers became so exasperated, he pulled over and let everyone off. Corbin and the kids are being hailed as heroes, according to Cheddar News. <laughs> well, Cheddar News has some really good stories. All right, so the next story is a really interesting one that I actually didn't know was a thing um so zombie fires detected in alaska and canada and they are set to increase so if you don't know what zombie fires are um they are blazes that ignite and burn in one season so like during the summer and then smolder through the winter by slowly combusting within peat and other soils emitting smoke but little or no flames then they re-emerge during the next spring erupting into flames once again so in a sense they never go out they just kind of like slowly make it through the winter and so that's really interesting and and what this article points out is that it, once the summers are hotter more of these zombie fires are existing so more fires and then more of them have the chance of kind of like never going out unless they're put out so that's kind of cool but very concerning at the same time <laughs> so you're saying they could be lit for like decades potentially centuries if the conditions are right mm. that's interesting millennia they're always lit well if you thought things couldn't get any worse the cast of uh, very famous sitcom friends is set to have a reunion uh, that airs on hbo max uh when is this going to happen i don't know you know some people are like diehard friends fans and um, I know our like fellow co-host Vadim is one of them. He like loves Friends, so um, it, it's a big story for him. You know, other of us don't really think that this is like very important, but Vadim I, is I, a diehard Friends fan. I deny any allegations, and I quote: <laughs> "I have friends." So, with the final story, um, the Irish health system struggles to recover from a cyber attack. Ireland's health system struggled to restore computers and threat patients Tuesday four days after it shut down its entire information technology system in a response to a ransomware attack. Thousands of diagnostic appointments, cancer treatment clinics, and surgeries have been canceled or delayed since Friday's cyber attack. Authorities said hundreds of people were assigned to get crippled systems back online, but it could be weeks before the public health service will return to normal. And this is very different because with the colonial pipeline we know that the russian hacker group um they said that they would never target hospitals they said that they would never do this because this is a company that brings good and isn't really necessarily there to make thousands and thousands of dollars and um, millions of dollars i should say but this company whoever it was that had this ransomware attack actually targeted a hospital which now can't treat patients can't have surgeries and also in this article it states that the government isn't willing to pay the ransom so what is going to happen with all of these patient records what is going to go on this is actually a very scary situation this is really evil that's that's what it is by the way did you know the colonial pipeline paid 4.4 million ransom and that'll do it for the lightning round Welcome back from the lightning round. I hope all of you listeners had fun there, learned something cool. Um, so now we are moving on to our next big story. So if you have been paying attention to the news stories at all this past week, you have surely heard of this. Um, it's been everywhere. The Israeli and Palestine conflict, or should I say the Israel and Hamas conflict, um, was raging at the beginning of this week and was the most talked about story. So before I continue, I did want to mention that on Thursday, there was a ceasefire called, which was a relief for those of us worried and praying for this um, conflict to dissipate. So 
Last week, we have covered this story fairly thoroughly, so I'm just going to be um, bringing up certain facts and just summarizing it. And so if you're actually interested in learning more, then feel free to tune into last week's story. Um, But the reason we're covering it this week again is because of the shocking way that the media and the Biden administration responded to these events. And I feel like there was these two different viewpoints, um, one of which being the side against Israel. Um, And Israel's critics often accuse it of a disproportionate use of force. They note that the undeclared nuclear power with the region's most powerful military is waging war on a militant group armed with little beyond long-range rockets, the majority of which are intercepted by Israel's anti-missile defenses. As in in the past, the toll in the current conflict is dramatically lopsided, with at least 200 killed in Gaza, nearly half of them women and children, and only 10 in Israel. All but one of them civilians. And the side that does take a stance for Israel has a valid point as well. They say the fighting erupted on May 10th when Hamas militants in Gaza fired long range rockets towards Jerusalem. So they kind of started the fight. The barrage came after days of clashes between Palestinian protesters and Israeli police at the Al Aqsa Mosque. I, I hope I pronounced that right. Um, compound. Hamas was first to act. Israel argues it has the right to eliminate the threat from rockets, including command infrastructure connected to it. It says it it makes every effort to avoid harming civilians, including by warning them ahead of some strikes. So there's two different viewpoints, like I mentioned before. One side is um, for Hamas, it's basically saying, hey, this is a small military group. They can't do any harm. And then it's saying Israel is the big bully. Now, the side that supports Israel is saying, do we not have a right to defend ourselves? They are firing at us. They started this war. We didn't start it. Is it our fault that our anti-air defense system is is just so, so good that it's blocking most of the missiles? Either way, which side do you guys agree with? Well, Israel has a responsibility for its citizens. If, if somebody's firing rockets at you, I mean, you have the responsibility to defend. And not only to defend, but, you know, we're talking about, what is it, 4,000 rockets have been fired in the past 10 days? That's a lot of rockets. That's that's not like, you know, Hamas did the little thing, you know, and maybe a few terrorists shot a few rockets over the border like it was in the past. This is an intentional attack. And so Israel is just doing the right thing, defending. It's military that's doing the right thing. See, if somebody was attacking U.S. right now, what would our response be? Would we just like be, all right, rockets are incoming. Let's take them down. No, there would be an outright war. We would go and occupy the territory that fired at us. Uh, Worse, we would probably, you know, do something terrible to them. Take Japan, for example. What happened in Pearl Harbor? And I mean, that's, that's a sad lesson, but that was our response. And so Hamas is using, you know, civilians as human shields. Like, Let's not forget that this these are this is an organization that wants Israel uh, to be wiped off the face of the earth, and so they apparently locate their military facilities inside hospitals, journalist headquarters, schools, mosques. Israel, on the other hand, always calls, like you said, the building supervisors ahead of time, and you know tells them that the buildings are about to be bombed, and so we got to understand that out of two hundred uh, Palestinians, they were killed. They're saying the majority of them, at least Israel, saying majority of them were. Um, what are they saying? 200 militants, including 25 senior commanders. And they also destroyed like 16 miles of militant tunnels. So Israel's Israel response is very targeted and well within their rights to defend their country. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the that the IDF calls the buildings ahead of time and uh, lets them know that they need to be evacuated. And maybe you guys have seen it. It's been going around. There's a transcript of a phone call 
of an uh, Israeli Defense Forces uh, person, I guess, uh, trying to warn the Palestinian occupants, I guess, about an impending strike. And so uh, the Palestinian says that I can't get all the people out. I need at least two hours to get them out. Uh, and then the IDF says, uh, listen, we're going to bomb the building. And then the man responds, you want to bomb? Bomb whenever you want. The IDF member responds and says, no, brother, we need to do everything we can so you don't die. And the Palestinian answers, we want to die. Israeli says, but you have a responsibility for children's lives. And then the Palestinian counters that if the children need to die, then they'll die. Uh, this is how we reveal your cruelty. I mean, this just goes to show that the IDF really operates on a really high uh, humanitarian standard. I was reading a transcript of Sam Harris's podcast, uh, really obviously well well known uh, atheist thought leader, you might say. But he's 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 pro-Israel, and he and so he's talking about how um, you know Hamas would use human shields and sometimes like directly in front of them as they're shooting at Israeli soldiers, and so that's meant to deter Israelis from firing at them because they don't want to hurt anyone that's innocent. Uh, whereas if the Israelis were to do that and place human shields in front, then the, you know, the terrorists or the Hamas see that as an advantage to kill two birds with one stone, so as to speak. And so it would turn into just a ghastly Monty Python sketch if the roles were actually reversed. So I feel like both of you are saying that Israel has the right to defend itself. And I feel like I agree with that standpoint because with the plethora of reasons that all of you gave, and I feel like Israel could have done even more. It could have went and actually started knocking on you know Gaza's door and mm -hmm. brought all of its military equipment and just went there to wipe out or, like you mentioned, Alex dropped an atomic bomb or started like nuking. Like, and it's just, it could have escalated Occupied a lot worse. Invaded it, yeah. Yeah. And so the, this was just measures to say to like kind of show Hamas that it's not going to put up with it, just ki killing um, innocent civilians and shooting these rockets. And uh, out of the 4000 missiles that you said, Alex, that Hamas launched, uh, 450 of those actually didn't make it past the Gaza border. So they kind mm -hmm. of fell. And with that, like the IDF was actually saying um, that some of those killed civilians that wasn't their fault. It was Hamas actually not getting the rockets to fly far enough. There's these two viewpoints. And here now we're going to give examples of actual politicians and people um, and organizations standing up. Um, so the first side, we see that the Black Lives Matter movement or organization had a stance on this and they declared its solidarity with Palestinians on Monday. Black Lives Matter Patterson condemns the ongoing violence against Palestinians in East Jerusalem by the state of Israel and stands in solidarity with those f fighting occupation. I quote, We as an organization believe in the freedom to worship and a life free from fear of expulsion and violence. Um, and I think it didn't help and it also riled some feathers when the it was found out the United States is conducting an arms sale. So it happened on Monday um, and they sent um, $735 million, um, to Israel. So and a, a lot of Democrats were kind of upset about this, um, and politicians um, in general, I guess. And here's another quote. Palestinian human rights are not a bargaining chip and must be protected, not negotiated. The aide said Tlaib expressed to Biden. The U.S. cannot continue to give the right wing Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin uh, Netanyahu government billions each year to commit crime against Palestinians. Atrocities like bombing schools cannot be tolerated, much less conducted with U.S. supplied weapons. Um, and Bernie Sanders said this, at a moment when U.S. made bombs are devastating Gaza and killing women and children, we cannot simply let another huge arms sale go through without even a congressional debate. So that was the side that's kind of 
for Hamas and for the Palestine. So here's uh, the other side. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell has blasted any Democrat attempts to blame Israel in any fashion or call for a ceasefire, standing behind the U.S. allies' fight against Hamas, the terrorist organization that has a stronghold on the Palestinian territories and governs Gaza. We cannot send the signal that terrorist attacks on American allies will be met with mealy-mouthed attempts to blame both sides, said McConnell. So another quote is what they really mean is that they want Hamas to win or they think Israel deserves to be attacked or they don't think Israel has a right to defend itself, Pollock told Fox News. But those are barbaric and probably anti-Semitic positions as they are applied to no other nation. So it is easier to conceal their real beliefs by misusing concepts from international law, hoping it makes them sound impartial and principled, but actually it makes them sound dishonest. So I hope that wasn't confusing. So there's clear stances and the Black Lives Matter organization and other politicians and congresswomen and congressmen, they take strongs and, and, and they're strong in their opinion. And clearly there's a conflict with these two beliefs, whether to side with Israel or to side with Hamas. I will say that not all members of the Democratic Party are ready to be anti-Israel. Some are still kind of, they're, they're not sure what side they are on. So the part that was interesting to me, the, or the viewpoint that sided with Hamas, was that it was seemingly taboo before to be anti-Semitic. And I know some people were even banned from Hollywood for making references to the Holocaust or saying something bad about um, Jew Jewish people or, or Hebrew or, or anything of that nature. But now all of a sudden, it seems like social media has had this switch where it is now okay with the media saying that, hey, we should fund um, these uh, the, this terrorist organization that kills people that is ready to chop people's heads off and you know that is strongly against lgbt where if someone that is gay lesbian or transsexual comes into hamas they'll probably kill them and they'll probably you know n not accept their viewpoints and so all of a sudden the media who is viewpoints are strongly against or strongly different than hamas are now supporting it and saying hey this is the right organization let's let's fund them and i'm just wondering why is it because they actually believe this organization or they're just against israel they don't want is israel to prosper and so kind of my question for both of you would be are you shocked at all by the media's response or maybe some members of the congress or senate's um you know response was it shocking to you yes. i think that uh, i think that as we've seen this sort of crisis develop throughout the years i mean we talk about the history going back to 40s where you know these people see it as uh, some kind of invasion of their land uh, and, you know, Israelis will see it as a legitimate real estate transaction, kind of like the Louisiana Purchase or something like that. Um, and so, you know, this goes way back. And I think that Hamas has wisened up to actually being able to capitalize on, uh, on being victims and uh, giving off the impression of being oppressed and uh, being basically... And then seeing that these organizations will back them if they can claim that the issues they're dealing with are not at their own fault. And so it's out of these crises that people become so desperate that they become terrorists, essentially. And so now they're still kind of wanting to keep up that image so that they can fund their terrorist activities. Uh, so I'm not surprised at, um, at the reaction from certain groups um, in, our, in our government, especially because they do these same kind of things locally, domestically. Um, but it's, it's really clear to me that Hamas is capitalizing on this. I think this is a case of, um, you know, our 
Western fallacy of quickly identifying minority with being morally right. We've, we've seen this being applied across you know any issue. The person could be a criminal, but they're, they're minority. All of a sudden, they're elevated because, well, they're uh, the oppressors. And so we're taking this oppressor versus the oppressed versus the oppressor and applying this lens and interpreting any situation in the world. It doesn't matter that this is a terrorist group, like you mentioned, Paul, that they are actually care probably less about our support unless it helps them fire more rockets and be not accountable for it. But we're here, you know, in America, oh, look at this, you know, Israel's bigger, they're the bully, right? And we apply our own lens to it. So, like, what you mean is we're conflating minority status with, like, a moral high ground, basically. That they're in the right, yeah. Yeah, I'm just shocked that so many people became experts in war and, you know, particularly Middle Eastern conflict. Um, The mentality that shocks me the most from both sides is the inability to listen and reason and make this not a right-wing versus left-wing issue or political issue in the United States, but a United States versus these two countries that are foreign. The division in this country is so deep that seemingly Americans are ready to fight each other over a conflict that is happening many miles away. And it's, it's just really funny to me. However, in terms of what's next for us in regards to this conflict, I'm sure most of us want this conflict to stop because it has the ability to be devastating. There's one side that backs one country or, or, or one party, and then the other, other countries join in and start backing, let's say, Israel, for example. And then now it's not two countries versus each other. Now it's just a whole big war and, and how like, you know, the world wars happened. So to see this conflict kind of die down and be resolved is awesome. However, this war has happened three times before. Will it happen again? Was this a test of Hamas to see if they can finally be big enough to take down Israel? Um, We don't know. Either way, in the Bible, it says to pray for Israel and to support it. So let's continue praying and keeping an eye out on this situation. So trending in the news and certainly in casual conversations this week on Wednesday, Bitcoin, the ubiquitous cryptocurrency, has had its worst market day since February. And the price has dropped from two weeks ago when it was nearly at 60000 on Wednesday, it dipped to close to 30000 And since then, it's leveled out as as of the time of recording. What is it now, like 37000 ish uh, But it's moving around a lot, even throughout the day, often with differences of 5 to 10%. Maybe that's not anything new, but that's what it is. But people are worried because a lot of the other major cryptocurrencies seem to be mirroring Bitcoin's volatility. We're talking Ethereum, Dogecoin, Litecoin, and so on. Cheddar News always on top of their game, interviewed Steve Ehrlich, who owns a crypto trading app. And he was adamant about this. You know, this is a prime uh, buying opportunity. These crypto coins are the future. There's no question about it, which is exactly what you would expect him to say, seeing as he is the CEO of a crypto trading app. Uh, but this is worth talking about, I think, because we see stories cropping up of governments developing their own cryptocurrencies. China has one in the works, and they're banning and unbanning independent coins like Bitcoin. EU has one in the works, US potentially. Even corporations like Amazon, I think, are not far away. Uh, Because we see trends across the market rather than different coins jostling for position, uh, what do you guys think is the biggest thing rocking the boat? No, I think, well, first of all, Elon Musk plays a big role in uh, shifting at least the opinion of the public, one cryptocurrency versus the other. I don't think he really affects the investors that much, at least not in the beginning. Well, the thing is, like, yeah, there's volatility mm-hmm. going daily. There's like 5 to 10%, mm-hmm. as we, but we see on Wednesday it dipped like 50%. Just, I mean, I, I invest in a couple of coins, not, not too much, so I'm by no means an expert, but kind of strange to me because with different stocks, 
like, yeah, if this whole stock market crashes, then all of them would go down. But within like a, a month or, or two months, you see one go down, another one goes up. And so that, that's kind of the stock market, which this, it seems like it's all like Vadim, you mentioned, it's all based on similar factors. And maybe it is Elon Musk, maybe, you know, if him going on SNL is why some of some of it dipped and that kind of caused it. My answer is I don't know. But I, it's definitely interesting. Well, it depends. Yeah. There could be also people pulling money out for summer. I think it's reflective of the nature of today's generation. Just kind of unpredictable all over the place. Since crypto in itself is new, uh, I think the trends and, and direction that it takes and the fact that a lot of newbies like me join, you know, this whole train of, you know, and have some money to put into it, that probably affects because we're unpredictable. We're not investors. Unless somebody's pulling strings in the back end. Bitcoin specifically, you you can absolutely link it to the fact that uh, Elon Musk said that Tesla will not be buying new Bitcoin. He showed a graph of how exponentially, how recently uh, the power that's required to mine Bitcoin has, you know, spiked in, in the past year and that they have plans to stay away from this kind of currency. Just the fact that he comes out and says that, you know, we're not going to be buying anymore, we're still keeping what we've got, but not buying anymore has caused a uncertainty as to the future of this currency. I don't know how much you want to take his statements at face value, though. But but really, like, who can talk about crypto without mentioning Elon Musk? Like, he has this army of, how many Twitter followers does he have now? Like, 55 million? A whole bunch of followers. And I have reason to think that a major cause of this volatility is because of his immediate influence. You can tell he kind of has fun with it. And each time he orchestrates another dip or another rise, uh, I'm sure he's buying and selling huge quantities, maybe billions. Uh, Sometimes it's as simple as changing his bio to include the word Bitcoin or announcing that you can buy, uh, like you guys mentioned, buying Teslas with Bitcoin uh, or announcing that you no longer can for whatever reason, or just tweeting the word Doge. Or just a random Tweet. meme that has some Dogecoin references Tweet. in there. Tweeting the word Dog. <laughs> No, but that, uh, that's the thing, though. Like when you're Elon Musk, a tweet is never just a tweet. Um, and so, and you guys already brought up his appearance on SNL. He's on record for calling Dogecoin a hustle. And as a reminder, Dogecoin was actually started off as a joke. But each uh, unit, I guess, has peaked at a price of seventy cents before Elon appeared on SNL. After that, it dropped down to nearly half, and slowly rose, kind of along kind of in the same wave as, as Bitcoin did. Uh, so we'll, we do see a lot of direct manipulation of crypto on the internet. Uh, is in only a matter of time before uh, people like Elon, they can manipulate the foreign exchange market? Uh, or is that too far out there? You know, is this going to change? Uh, is this going to change when governments have their own cryptocurrencies? Or does this show that uh, crypto is risky, period? What I'm seeing is the shift towards trusting more in these, you know, in business rather than government. And so Anything that's, and especially that we're living in a digital age, cryptocurrency has a potential to become the main currency just because we want to dissociate ourselves from government, I guess. And currently, being as it is unregulated, largely unregulated, it's enticing to be part of something that's, you know, worldwide. I personally think it's risky. If a celebrity like Elon Musk tweeting about Dogecoin or Bitcoin makes it rise and fall, it definitely doesn't seem safe. I think if crypto was to be the next big thing, if that was the way, you know, that that was the next big currency and may I say uh, like a world currency that everyone could buy, I, I think it would need to disassociate from any country or a person. Because imagine, let's say, if the U.S. Um, made a, like a crypto dollar or whatever and it went 
down or up based on the approval ratings of the president. That would be scary if you actually depended on that crypto for living, if that was your primary currency. That's why I don't think the cryptocurrency as of right now is ever going to be a stable currency until it is removed from the stock market. So if somehow it is not, it's no longer like demand for it um, based on the demand of it or based on the um what people think of Elon Musk or the pe- or the person who made the coin. It's just an actual currency that can be destabilized from an actual country. But are the risks higher than even the rewards that we've had so far? You kind of have to choose the stability of a behemoth that is, you know, uh, the, the U.S. dollar or, you know, take the adventurous new prospectful futuristic digital coin which might, you know, change the world as we know it. So it's really, you know, and and I think that for us millennials, it's likely that we would take higher risks than the previous generation. Yeah, there's no question about uh, how much capital there is being invested into crypto. Uh, And with any investment, there's no reward given out for no risk. Uh, Although although I do think that we've seen a lot of kind of get-rich-quick stories, success stories that are driving this phenomenon. And so there's no question that things are changing and that this is um, this is here to stay. You know, there's some of these cryptocurrencies have market caps of like a trillion dollars. So there's no question that things are changing someday. We'll have to depart from some things that we once thought we can never live without. Uh, you know, on the one hand, that's natural. When interstates were built across the country, it created ghost towns. Uh, when online banking was created, it created, uh, you know, a whole network world of hackers. The reason I think that this warrants hesitation, I guess, is that uh, sooner or later, if we go more into um, you know digital currency, cryptocurrency, our own government currencies being digitalized, um, sooner or later we can find ourselves with banks having full control of your money. Each transaction is recorded. Uh, government can control what you buy. Uh, you're basically one frozen account away from being completely dysfunctional in society. Um, and so we don't give financial advice on this platform, but I'll just leave with this. According to the Bible, the wisest and richest man to ever live was King Solomon. He is known to have written in Proverbs 13.11 that wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase. What this means is that get-rich-quick schemes are doomed to failure one way or another, and that we should trust and pray for the Lord to provide for us the means by which we can work and make a living, and be thankful for what God has given you to own. Well, that's all for the stories for this week. We are so glad that you've joined us for another episode of Life Ring. Please consider sharing it with a friend or family member that would benefit from a weekly overview of the current events from a conservative and Christian perspective. And as always, we'd like to remind you that there is no better news on any given day than the good news of Jesus Christ. He died for the sins of the world so that everyone who comes to him would be saved. We encourage you to seek him if you haven't already. Thank you for listening to Life Ring and we'll see you next week. See you. Bye.